Um, this morning, I want to encourage you uh, to open up your Bibles, if you have them, to Luke chapter 23. If you don't have it, we'll actually have it up on the screen. But this morning, we start a new series, and it simply is, Jesus said what? On the cross, right? And we're going to be looking over the next few weeks, we're going to be looking at the seven sayings of Jesus. This is often referred to as the seven words of Jesus on the cross. Not really sure why they came with words when they're really phrases, Um, but we're going to be looking at specifically at what Jesus said on the cross as we approach Easter, and then one week after Easter, we'll actually conclude the series as we look at what Jesus actually says when he says, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And so this morning, we have the unique first saying of Jesus, and it's actually probably the most well-known, I think. If you talk to people in our culture, in our world, they'll often know what Jesus said in this moment. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And so I want to ask you this morning, what's your understanding of forgiveness? How do you see forgiveness? And what is forgiveness? So the church today has a wonderful place. We live in a culture that has terms like cancel culture. It's all over everywhere. You make a mistake, you're canceled. What an odd thing, isn't it? To say that somebody is canceled. More importantly, think about the power of that. What do you do if you're canceled? And these things seem relatively absurd, but even in its absurdity, they continue to thrive. Everybody knows that it's absurd, everyone, and yet it's permeated. Why? To gain advantage, to push an agenda, to persuade people towards your understanding, We have a culture that claims to be tolerant, but has no understanding of forgiveness. That has no understanding of hope. And where second chances are only granted when it benefits the other person. The gospel is the answer. It is our opportunity as the body of Christ to bring to bear the hope of the gospel which says that we are to forgive and where there is repentance we are to do it 70 times 7. That there should not be any single person canceled apart from repentance. Christ. So as we think about this word forgiveness this morning, as we look at what Jesus said on the cross, ask yourselves a simple question. Are you canceling somebody? Have you yourself been canceled?
And truthfully, what needs to be canceled in your life? Because Jesus offers a forgiveness that cancels your absolute greatest need. The one thing that defines you in your humanity is your sin. And the one thing that Christ defines in his grace is the cancellation of that sin. So let's go ahead and read this passage together. We're going to look actually at the context of this passage, a short, brief, immediate context of this, out of Luke 23. And then we're going to dive into this particular statement that Jesus makes. And what we're going to see here is we're actually going to see the goodness of God in contrast to the condition of man's heart. So let's go ahead and stand as we read this. It's just a short little section this morning out of Luke. Luke chapter 23, verses 32 through 38. Now, it's important to know that Jesus here has already been tried. Pilate himself said, I found him not guilty of anything worthy of death, and yet they continue to cry, crucify him, crucify him. And rather than handing over a guilty criminal, the crowd chooses Jesus. He's been slapped with the cross to carry. We know that the cross weighed anywhere from 100 to 200 pounds. The cross laid across his shoulders, which had been beaten and were raw and torn apart. And he drags this cross, he carries this cross with the help of a man, Simon of Cyrene. And after carrying the cross, we come to verse 32, which says this, two others who were criminals were led away to be put to death with him. And when they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they cast lots to divide his garments, and the people stood by watching. But the rulers scoffed at him, saying, He saved others. Let him save himself, if he is the Christ of God, his chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine and saying, If you are the king of Jews, save yourself. There was also an inscription over him. This is the king of the Jews. You may be seated. The passage I read from is not the one that you saw on the screen. If you saw, you probably caught that. And that's okay. Listen to what I read. So I'm going to read it to you again. Two others who were criminals led away to be put to death with him. And when they came to the place that is called the skull, they were crucified him and the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they cast lots to divide his garments. And the people stood by watching, but the rulers scoffed at him, saying, He saved others. Let him save himself, if he is the Christ of God, his chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine and saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. 
There was also an inscription over him, this is the king of the Jews. Lord, may you take your word this morning. And Father, we pray that you would not only implant it upon our heart, but God, as your promise says, that you will not return it void. Challenge us this morning. Encourage us this morning. May your word, God, come forth in power through your spirit. Father, move me aside. And may you be known. And we ask this in your name. Amen. So at the heart of Jesus' prayer is that Christ's prayer for forgiveness on the cross exposes God's goodness and the condition of our hearts. Christ's prayer for forgiveness on the cross exposes God's goodness and the condition of our hearts. This forgiveness actually exposes goodness. Now, the reason this prayer is often known is because we love to be forgiven. We do. And in simplicity's sake, we all want to be forgiven. Now, forgiving others is a different story. But our own personal desire is to be forgiven. And so our culture can run to these words. I think even within the body of Christ, we can run to these words which should give us hope. But it not, should not be the final thing that is said. Now, in verse 22, Jesus has been beaten, as we mentioned. He's been tried. He's been declared guilty unto death. We know from verse 22 that they found no guilt deserving of death. And yet, he continues to be moved down the road, moved towards his crucifixion. And we're told then in verse 33 that when they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. Now, it's important to understand a little bit about crucifixions. So crucifixions were not founded in Rome, but much like many things, the Romans took what they learned and perfected it. They mastered it. And so in Rome, crucifixions were a commonplace for death. In fact, one of the, the best parts about this, or maybe the most grotesque part about it, was that it was done often in volume. What's unique about this is it's actually only done with three. It's done with two criminals and Jesus. It means that they were expediting his death. Now Cicero, the, the Roman sinner and orator, he called crucifixion the cruelest and most hideous punishment. He went on to say that it was the worst an ultimate punishment for slaves. In fact, in Rome, the crucifixion was referred to as the punishment belonging to slaves. It's one of the great reasons that when we look at Philippians 2, 7, and 8, it says, but this is speaking of Jesus, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant or a slave, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death 
He actually died the death of a slave. Those that were discarded. Now, if you want to have any question or not whether slaves were valued in Rome, in the Bella Sevilla, it's told that at the end of the slave revolt under Spartacus in 71 BC, that the Roman general Cassus ordered 6,000 slaves to be crucified upon, along the Appian Way between Capua and Rome. And Quintilian goes on and he says that the most crowded roads were chosen as the sites for crucifixion so that the maximum number of people could see and be moved by fear. Picture that. 6,000 slaves crucified at the same time alongside a road. It was the ultimate sign of deterrence. Don't screw up or this is you. The essence of it was fear and total fear. The crosses were often about seven feet tall. They were fit to the man or the woman. Most often the death took three days. It's one of the beautiful things that we're reminded of on the cross that Jesus laid down his life. They didn't take it. The fact that he died in six hours is a testament to the fact that he laid down his life, that God was still sovereign even then. And the uniqueness of what was taking place is that this was a death for slaves. It was designed to humiliate, and it was designed to torture. There is one individual that has been dug up, only one that we know of archaeologically, that was crucified. He died with the encryption that said, the man that died with his knees apart. When you were crucified, often they wouldn't use the hands. They would actually use the wrists. The hands were too soft, they would often tear through the nails. The feet were put one over the other. The stake would go through both feet to hold up. On the cross was a small little bench that as their body began to sag, they would land on that bench because the purpose was, was for them to stay there. And without the bench, they would tear through and fall off the cross. So if you picture that for a moment, being crucified, nails through both feet, your body begins to sag. And the most common aspect of death was not blood loss. But the most common aspect of death for the cross was asphyxiation. So there was a constant battle between constantly lifting themselves off the seat back and forth. When Jesus spoke these words... 
They would have been words that were difficult. Imagine trying to grasp for breath and simply say out loud for all to hear, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Ever fought for breath? Go on a long run, come back, or be winded, or be working out, you're next to somebody, I don't know if you're on the treadmill. I know for me, it's like I'm out, I'll go out for a, a, a walk, or back in the old days, a run. Somebody would call, and I'm taking a call in my earphones, and some of you have even been on calls with me recently, Corey, where I'm like, dude, sorry, I'm huffing and puffing, right? And you're just like, and you don't really want to expend a lot of words, this is huge. Jesus is expending these words. We're to take note of it. We're to listen to it. We're to hear it. We're to respond to it. Now, he prays. Interesting that Jesus prays, isn't it? Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Now, this word forgive here is interesting. It's not the most common word that's used in Greek, which is hamartia, but it's actually the word aphiomi. And aphiomi means to literally send off, to release, or to let go. And it's used in a legal context. It's often referring to obligations or to debt that are being released or sent off. So when he says, forgive them, what he's actually talking about is a remission of debt or a cancellation of the wages of sin. A remission of debt or a cancellation of the wages of sin. You see, what is death? Death is simply the wage of sin. It is the wage of sin. It is the rightful consequence of sin. It is the result of sin. Death is the result of sin. And it is why in Romans 6.23, we're told those words that often have been repeated, which simply say, for the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now, why are we in need of forgiveness? Why were they in need of forgiveness? Because we're all in need of forgiveness. And the reason that we need forgiveness is because we are in debt to God. Because our wage, our wage that is sin results in death. Now think about that. Think about all the times where we think, hey, I deserve. I'm owed this. Or I deserve this. I've worked hard, so I deserve this. You owe me this because I've done this. If that's the way we choose to live our lives, then Jesus says, guess what? You actually deserve death because that's the wage of your sin, and you owe me your life. What he's calling for is forgiveness, 
where the debt is canceled, the wage is canceled. And the only way to do that is through his blood. In Hebrews 9, 22, 24 through 26, it says, Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to, to appear to the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood not his own. For then he would have had not to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. Excuse me. For then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. He was the lamb that went on the cross sacrificing himself for our sake. He is taking our punishment. He's putting on our sin, the consequence of that sin, the result of that sin, the shame of that sin. He is bearing it all for our sake, shedding his blood once and for all. Matthew 26, 26 through 28 says, Now as they were eating, Jesus took bread, and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he'd given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood, the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. How do we have forgiveness of sins? It is through the blood of Jesus Christ. God's a just God. And in his justice needed a a rightful sacrifice. And Jesus took that sacrifice for us and became that sacrifice for us. Murray Harris puts it this way. He says, forgiveness then is the remission of the indebtedness to God caused by sin. It is no longer owing what we once owed, not because of anything that we have done, but because of everything that Christ has done. So he goes on, for they know not what they do. Well, here's the thing. Is Jesus offering them salvation here? He's not. He's actually saying, forgive them, for they know not what they do. He's praying to the Father on their behalf, But he's praying for them because they're spiritually blind. For they know not what they do. To know not is to be blind. To be spiritually blind to the truth of who Jesus is. Now if you think for a moment about the Romans that are crucifying Jesus, they have very little understanding of the truth. However, isn't it interesting that they got the truth right? Here is the king of the Jews. The Jews who were persecuting him around, that were yelling at him and mocking him, they knew, they knew what to look for in a Messiah, and yet they had rejected it. They were blind to the truth. In Acts 17, verse 30 through 31, it says, The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. Because he's fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he's appointed. And of this he's given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. We're all spiritually blind. 
until Christ is the one who then intercedes on our behalf. The problem was they didn't even know the depth of what they were doing. Arthur Pink puts it simply. He says, ignorance is not innocence. Just because they didn't know doesn't mean they weren't guilty. In Romans 2, we're told in verse 6, He will render to each one according to his works, to those by patience and well-doing, seek for glory and honor and immortality. He will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek, but glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek, for God shows no partiality. The only way to do good is to repent and put our faith in Christ. It's his goodness working in and through us. Now forgiveness is sought because it is for the purpose of reconciling relationship. God does not actually reconcile relationship apart from repentance. He says, repent and believe. That was the very beginning of Jesus' ministry. For us, when we look at forgiveness, we need to see that when somebody is, is before us and we have offended them, we are called to repent. That's the ultimate desire. Now, as followers of Christ... Where there isn't repentance, it's difficult to have relationship. And we need to, to, to often come be t- before the Lord at times where there may be events or circumstances that have happened in your life and, and you're struggling to forgive somebody for them and you're feeling like they haven't repented. Well, you need to put that before the Lord and you need to let God begin to deal with that. But you also need to check your own spirit. You need to ask yourself, are you holding them to a standard that isn't yours? Have you actually heard their hearts? Are you getting lost in the details? Is having it perfectly, completely, and rightly done in your own way the only way that you're going to have and experience forgiveness through the reconciliation of relationships? We need to be a people who trust that God has forgiven us. Who realize that we do screw up and people screw up repeatedly. But if they repent repeatedly, that we can offer and walk in the healing of that forgiveness We need to be a people who are forgiving. Who see that God has forgiven us, and yet in our forgiveness, there are many times that we turn and betray Him. You see, we tend to judge ourselves by our intentions and others by their actions, which means that we give ourselves tons of grace 
But with others, they're left in judgment. We got to flip that. We got to look at ourselves and examine ourselves and ask the hard questions of ourselves and extend the same forgiveness that Jesus extended. Because man is spiritually blind, we need the forgiveness of Christ. And because man is spiritually blind, we put Jesus on the cross. So, what does Christ's prayer then do here? How do we see Christ in it? How do we see his goodness in it? Well, for most of us, when we hear this prayer, what we see is love. We see the love of God. And the love of God is coming through this prayer significantly. But it's more specific, right? You know, when people talk about the love of God, it's kind of like the idea of, you know, don't eat dairy. Right? Like, some people can do ice cream, and other people can do no ice cream and no cheese. It's, kinda, it's, it's, a, it's a variable, right? And so sometimes it's, it's like, I remember as a kid, I was allergic to milk, but I could have ice cream and cheese just fine. It didn't serve me well, right? But the difference there is that when we talk about the love of God, it's the all-encompassing love of God. It's not just this generic thing that goes out there where we have no definition of it, where we don't understand it. And so the truth is, is that Christ's prayer for forgiveness demonstrates God's goodness through a couple of things. The first thing is his loving intercession. His loving intercession. In Isaiah 53, 12, we're given this description of the Messiah. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. The Messiah was the one that was praying on behalf of those who were spiritually blind, who were lost, who were persecuting him. In John 17, we're told as Jesus prays, he says this, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who, who will believe in me through their word that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that you they might also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. What an awesome thing. Before you ever come to Christ, he is praying for you. He is interceding on your behalf. He is working. He is moving. He is drawing. How can we say that salvation is not a work of our own? Because he is moving already before we ever have a desire to work and move. What an awesome thing, isn't it? An awesome thing that you have a Savior who is praying for you who is interceding for you. And here is the picture. He's not interceded for those that he likes. He's not interceded for those that are just his neighbors. He's interceded for the very ones who are looking to take 
his own life. Now, for you and I, we'd be kind of like, teach their own. I hope you get what you deserve. Jesus had the ability to give them exactly what they deserved. And yet, he pleads with the Father. He pleads with them. He pleads with God to grant them forgiveness that they might come to know Jesus. Isn't it an awesome thing that you may not know how to pray, but he does? Ever been in those moments where you you just don't know what to pray? What a wonderful thing to know that the Spirit of Christ is actually interceding on your behalf. The Holy Spirit himself. It's freeing. We're told in John 6, 44, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him and I will raise him up on the last day. This gives us confidence. It gives us confidence that your sin is not too far gone for our God. That God is not looking to cancel you. You are not worthless to God, no matter what you've done, where you've been. But through repentance and through faith in Christ, you are redeemed, you are His, and you have been forgiven. The very worst thing that you can imagine that you've done in your life is put under the blood of Christ and no longer counted against you in Jesus if you have repented and believed on him. One commentator adds this, in praying for his enemies, he, that is Christ, also taught us never to regard anyone as beyond the reach of prayer. Let us too make intercession for the enemies of God and if we pray in faith, we also share, shall pray effectively under the salvation of lost sinners. Now I'll tell you, this week I got hit hard with this. Watching the news, I look at Putin. What an evil man is what goes through my mind. An evil, lost man taking the lives of innocent people. And he is. What he is doing is evil. And you know what went through my mind was? I wonder what kind of technology we got to take him out. <laughs> right? And I'm not sure that's entirely wrong, by the way. But what was wrong is my very first response should be what Christ says. Father, forgive him. May he come to you. May he know you. May his eyes be open to the truth of you. And may he experience the life-altering, life-transforming grace of Jesus. What a testimony, wouldn't it be? If all of a sudden he called everything off and said, Hey, I met somebody who can give me more security and more value and more worth than anything that I thought I might get. And oh, by the way, I was completely wrong I took the lives of those many, and in this life, I should experience the just consequence of it. 
because I know that I have a Father who's granted me mercy in the face of that justice. What an awesome thing, wouldn't it be? It's so easy to go along with the world on this stuff. And it doesn't mean that we don't deal with evil. It doesn't mean that I can't do both at the same time. The question is, am I doing both? Have I started from a position of love the way that Christ started from a position of love? Or have I lost sight of the fact that all are redeemable? All have the opportunity to know Christ if they repent and believe. Secondly, what we see on the cross is compassionate mercy. Compassionate mercy. Psalm 103.8 tells us, The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. If you recall, in Luke 19.41, as Jesus went into the city in anticipation of what was to come with his death, He simply said this, and when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it. Jesus knew what was to come, and yet he wept. He wept over the lostness of their souls. It's it's what happens to us at times where we get jaded in this life, and we confuse our emotions. We see things in the world that we don't like or we don't agree with. And it should produce in us a weeping rather than an anger. But we dumb our emotions down to being kind of happy and angry. And we allow the simplicity to lose sight that God's made us emotive. And he wept over the lostness of the city. Do we weep over the lostness of Sonoma County? Do we weep over the lostness of Santa Rosa and Rohnert Park? Do we weep over the the, the lostness of Marin or Sebastopol or Windsor? Or, Or Geyserville or Cloverdale? Do we weep over the condition of man? Jesus has a compassionate mercy here. He knew what was to come, and yet he extends them mercy through this prayer. Robert Nash points out that understanding the sin originally forgiven us gives us the power to extend mercy to those who wrong us and make a poor attempt to get right. If we understand what we've been forgiven of, we can forgive others much easier. We can also understand that when the attempt doesn't feel exactly like we want it, that we can listen to the heart of that attempt and grant forgiveness because that is what God does with us. The third thing is long-suffering patience. Long-suffering patience. Now, go back here for a moment into the the heart of this passage in Luke, the the beginning of the context here, this immediacy of context that we've been looking at. And it says this, 
Two others were criminals, were led away to be put to death with him. And when they came to the place that's called the skull, they were crucified. They crucified him and the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. And they cast lots to divide his garments. And the people stood by watching, but the rulers scoffed at him, saying, He saved others. Let him save himself. If he's the Christ of God, his chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine and saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. Jesus himself endures not just persecution, but he endures ongoing persecution. Now listen to the description in Matthew 27, telling of the same part of the story. As they went out, they found a man of Cyrene, Simon by name. They compelled this man to carry his cross. And when they came to a place called Golgotha, which means place of the skull, they offered him wine to drink mixed with gall. But when he tasted it, he would not drink it. And when they crucified him, they divided his garments among them by casting lots. Then they sat down and kept watch over him there. And over his head, they put the charge against him, which read, This is Jesus, the king of the Jews. Then two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right and one on the left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads. Remember, this is a public road. So it's not just the Roman guards. It's not just the Jewish people. It is the Roman citizens walking past on the road. And they too are mocking him. And they were saying, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. Can you imagine that? Jesus had the power to come off the cross. And they're saying, listen, if you're the Son of God, prove it. Now, I think as every guy in this room can attest to, at some point in our lives, we've been dared to do something stupid because our pride was, was questioned that we knew we could do, that we miserably failed at. Think about that for a minute. These people are walking by Jesus saying, if you are truly God, get yourself off that cross. And Jesus knew he could, and he chose not to, for our sake. It was a long-suffering goes on and it says so also the chief priests with the scribes and elders mocked him saying he saved others he cannot save himself he is the king of israel let him come down now from the cross and we will believe in him wow this is the the christ that we serve one that is not just simply being talk about the the, the physical pain but it's the emotional pain of being tormented and tortured what they're calling him in that moment is a liar. He is the very essence of truth, and yet he's being called a liar. Jesus suffers with them. It's not just a mercy. It's a long-suffering patience. He waits until the timing of the Father to complete that work. 1 Corinthians 13 says this about love. It says in verse 4, love is patient and kind. It goes on in verse 7, love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. When Christ is sitting on that cross and he's long-suffering, it is the very essence of his love. When we long-suffer with others, it is the very essence of love. That's why when God calls us to deal with the, the needy and the marginalized, 
He's calling us to long suffer. He's calling us to bear up with our brothers and sisters and to long suffer with them. To not look at it and go, hey, I've told you once. I told you once how to do this, to live it out, and you keep sinning. No, it's a long-suffering. Romans 2, verses 4 through 6 says, Do not suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you're storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. So although Jesus long suffers with us, what he's saying is, do not presume on it. Do not believe that you have more time. And do not take it for advantage of it. That when he, he exposes your sin to you, repent of it and walk in it. See, I think what happens sometimes is we view God in, in the sense of consequences. We, we commit sin and go, hey, nothing happened here. So God may not really care. I know he does, but he may not really care. When we see our sin, whether that's pride, whether that's sexual immorality, whether that's sexual impurity, whether that's greed, whether that's apathy, whether that's gossip or slander, whether that is being mastered by something, either alcohol or drugs or sex or whatever it may be, when we see that and are confronted with it, we're not to sit back and go, ah, I'll deal with that another day. God's calling us to deal with it now. To not presume on his patience. Finally, what we see here, after seeing his loving intercession, his compassionate mercy, his long-suffering patience, is we see his trustworthy faithfulness. His trustworthy faithfulness. In Luke 6, verses 27 through 28, Jesus says this. He says, But I say to you who hear, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who abuse you. Jesus is consistent, He is faithful, He does not violate His own word, He is exactly who He claims to be. Jesus taught the apostles to love their enemies and to pray for them. And in his worst moment, Jesus does it himself. And in Jesus, we can do it as well. Because it is Christ in us. And so because Christ is in us, we too can love our enemies and pray for them. In Acts 3, 17 through 18, it says, And now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did also your rulers. But what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets, that his Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. In Acts 3, what we see 
is we see a group of Jews who were, innocent, who, who were ignorant. They were ignorant to the truth of Jesus. And now they have repented and believed on Christ. Acts 3 is actually an answer to the cross when he prayed, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. And then in Acts 3, we see this picture of the ignorant being saved. He is faithful. He is faithful. And do we see that faithfulness can be trusted? Do we actually believe that what he says and what he's done are trustworthy? And do we trust him enough to continue with him? And finally this. He says in Acts 13, 37 through 39, But he whom God raised up did not see corruption. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you, and by him everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. As followers of Jesus, the cross gives us hope that we truly have forgiveness of sin. Not because of what we've done, but because of everything that he's done. And so when we repent and believe on Jesus, we are granted his spirit and the power to walk this truth out. And that truth is trustworthy and faithful. Marcus Aurelius, the great Roman Empire and Stoic saint said this, Today you will meet all kinds of unpleasant people. They will hurt you and injure you and insult you. But you cannot live like that. You know better. For you are a man in whom the Spirit of God dwells. Because of his cross and because of his forgiveness, we can love as Christ loved. So may we walk in his forgiveness, which has canceled our debt, canceled the wage of sin, and declares the true and living God. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this word on the cross. Thank you that we get to rejoice in forgiveness. Father, I pray this morning that for all those who have yet to believe in you, I pray that right now, that they would repent and believe on you, that they would experience forgiveness of sin that can only come through you. For those who have repented and believed, Lord, my prayer is that we, as your church, would live in the mercy and knowledge that our sin has been canceled and that we would live as a merciful people, a forgiving people, in whom the world sees the love of Jesus. May we walk in the hope of the cross today, and we ask this in your name. Amen.